and welcome to the Matrix Law Pod with me, Richard Hermer. To many of us, the hallmark of a civilised society is how we choose to treat the most vulnerable, those without resources or political clout, the destitute and the desperate. The acid test for measuring whether a society complies with these standards might be thought to be how collectively it recognises and honours its responsibility to refugees, those who are compelled to leave their homes because of a well-founded fear of persecution. The obligations of states to provide shelter for, for refugees and the rights afforded to them on arrival have long been reflected in international law, but were brought together in the 1951 United Nations Convention relating to the status of refugees, more commonly known as the Refugee Convention and its 1967 protocol. Like many of the UN Human Rights Conventions drafted in the post-war period, it was influenced by the long shadow of the Holocaust and the mass migration generated by global warfare. It creates a basic definition of the term of a refugee and provides a range of rights and protections to those seeking asylum, including recognised what would have been obvious to the drafters, and indeed is to all of us today, that those escaping persecution might be compelled to enter a third country without prior permission, and that such conduct should not be criminalised. The United Kingdom was one of 26 states participating in the drafting conference for the convention, and we were one of the first countries to sign it, and then the 1967 protocol, which dramatically extended its reach. It makes for a really proud part of our history. So then to the subject matter of this podcast, which is the Nationality and Borders Bill, currently being steered through Parliament by our Home Secretary, Priti Patel. The bill, at least on its face, appears to be a radical redrawing of the domestic law application of our commitments under the Refugee Convention. In a legal opinion, drafted on the instructions of freedom from torture, a leading human rights organisation in the field, the lead author, Raza Hussein, Queen's Council of Matrix Chambers said, in our view, this bill represents the biggest legal assault on international refugee law ever seen in the UK. Well, I'm delighted that here to justify such a statement is Raza himself, joined by Sheila Reynolds, the head of asylum advocacy at Freedom From Torture. Raza is quite simply the country's leading barrister in immigration law, although his expertise extends beyond, well beyond that. It's quite hard to summarise Raza's CV, but suffice it to say he has appeared in well over 30 cases before the Supreme Court and House of Lords, appearing not least for the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. Sheila joined Freedom From Torture in 2015, continuing a long career in the field of refugee protection, including at the British Refugee Council and a stint in the Republic of Congo for the UNHCR. Freedom From Torture is one of the country's leading human rights NGOs. Its mandate to protect and support victims of torture places it at the very heart of the debate about refugees, because understandably it's victims of torture who arrive here, who find themselves caught in the asylum system. The organisation not only provides practical support to refugees in the system, for example by providing medical legal reports, but seeks to drive policy debates around refugee rights. And it's been campaigning hard against the bill, and it was in this context that the opinion uh, from Raza and others, including Matrix's own Eleanor Mitchell, was sought. So, uh, Raza, Sheila, thank you very much uh, for joining the Matrix Law uh, pod. 
Can we start perhaps with some definitions? Because many people like me will have uh, limited knowledge of um, refugee and immigration law. And, and can we just, the most basic, um, in discussions, um, there's reference to asylum seekers, uh, there's reference to refugees. Raza, are these terms of art that bear different meanings? Yeah, they are terms of art. A, a refugee basically is anybody who fulfills the definition of refugee status in Article 1A2 of the Refugee Convention. That's the basic definition. But the important point is that state recognition is declaratory and not constitutive. So what I mean by that is that states don't create refugees. They recognize them. And that means that for the time being, and as regards certain key rights, the state has to regard a person as a refugee unless and until they determine that they are not. So a state can't return an Afghan to Kabul without processing his or her claim on the basis that the state hasn't created that individual as a refugee. Uh, asylum seekers, there is a debate, which I won't get into, that asylum is a far broader concept and extends to protection from all sorts of harm, including from famine and natural disaster. The refugee definition is, in fact, very narrow. You have to have a well-founded fear of persecution for particular reasons, race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership of a particular social group, civil and political status, essentially, rather than socioeconomic status. There are historical reasons for that. But without getting into that debate, Essentially, in domestic law, an asylum seeker is someone who has claimed refugee status. And I gave a kind of a very broad, no doubt inaccurate overview of the uh, convention in the introduction there. Um, what, what are the essential features uh, of it? So the basic aspect of the refugee convention is that if you are a refugee, then you can't be returned to persecution. But it's a lot, lot more than that. And for present purposes, I think the essential, per essential features are probably these. Firstly, the Refugee Convention replaced a pre-authorization scheme with a needs-based scheme. What do I mean by that? So in the 1930s, there were refugee conventions which permitted states, it was a right of states to accept refugees um, from Germany, Armenia, Russia, where they had authorized uh, their admission. Um, that was fundamentally replaced in 1951 so that anybody who met the definition and who was subject to the state's jurisdiction most obviously by arriving in the state, but it's not limited to that, then they were entitled to claim refugee status and to the protection that, 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 that followed. Uh, so the mode of arrival, whether authorized or not, was completely irrelevant. And this has been referred to by world-leading academics as perhaps the biggest innovation of the Refugee Convention. And, and that's presumably just um, recognizing what was the reality and maybe is remains the reality is if you are escaping from persecution, 
Um, sometimes you do have to end, enter countries without having made your written application three months in advance, um, waited for everything to be stamped and signed. You have to leave um, and sometimes um, enter in a way that's contrary to the laws of the country you're entering. Yeah, so, so that is written in uh, to the Refugee Convention itself. It's written into the basic rationale of the Refugee Convention. In a very famous statement in 1959, um, the US UN Secretary General, uh, sorry, 1939, uh, stated that a refugee whose departure from his country of origin is usually a flight is rarely in a position to comply with the requirements of legal entry, possession of a passport or a visa into the country of refuge. It was basic to the Refugee Convention because there were appalling uh, examples in recent history. The famous case of um, 937 Jewish refugees who fled Hitler's Germany uh, in the late 30s on the SS St. Louis were turned away from Cuba and the US, were intercepted at sea, something that's redolent of plans that we now have, intercepted at sea by Canadian, the Canadian Navy, were forced back to sail, uh, forced back to Europe. And there, uh, more than 250 of those Jewish refugees uh, ultimately ended up being killed by the Nazis. So that is the very powerful historical context for this idea that if you arrive in a state, you can claim refugee status irrespective of whether or not your entry and arrival has been pre-authorized. We have a dedicated article, Article 31, which provides immunity from penalty for those whose quest uh, for asylum reasonably involves them breaking the law. I'll come back to Article 31 in a moment. It's, very, it's been misinterpreted completely by uh, this bill. Can I just ask you what the status of the Refugee Convention is in um, the law of England and Wales? I mean, the, the, we're obviously a, um, uh, we don't automatically uh, incorporate, unless Parliament says we should, international conventions. What's the status of, of the Refugee Convention? So the Refugee Convention in domestic law has primacy over immigration rules and immigration policies. And that is because of a provision in quite an old act now, the 1993 Act, Section 2, which essentially says that nothing in the immigration rules shall lay down any practice that's contrary to the Refugee Convention. So that gives the Refugee Convention primacy over immigration rules and impliedly immigration policies. What it doesn't do is domesticate it for all purposes and it doesn't mean that Parliament and its wisdom can legislate uh, incompatibly with it. That's, of course, not what's going on here. Here, the government are at pains to suggest, without any argumentation whatsoever, without any justification whatsoever, that everything that they're doing um, falls within not just the spirit, but also the letter of the Refugee Convention. That's a claim. Uh, which could not be more false. Well, I'm going to come on to the, the, the bill and what the government is saying about it in, in a second. But Sheila, can I just ask you, from your perspective, uh, for someone working kind of hands-on in the field, what the 
kind of practical effect that the Refugee Convention is? I mean, what it means in real terms to, I mean, you obviously do with torture uh, um, survivors, what it means uh, by way of protection for them in real terms. Yeah, I think I think the word practical is a really is a really critical word in that in that question, isn't it? Because you know, as Roz has explained, the convention isn't UK law, but it still does make a huge difference to the lives of refugees in the UK. And he's touched on a couple of the foundational principles within the convention. He's talked about non-refoulement, so not returning people to the country of persecution, and he's talked about non-penalisation on the basis of irregular arrival. There's also the principle around non-discrimination in the in the rights and entitlements enjoyed by refugees as compared to nationals of, of the country in which they're, they've sought sanctuary. And each of these principles makes a huge, huge difference to the lives of people fleeing persecution, including those who, who've come to the UK. But this is a really important point. It's often in that practical implementation through the UK's asylum system that the enjoyment of convention rights just gets a bit messy, goes a bit awry. And that's especially the case for people who are seeking asylum whose status hasn't yet been recognised. Take non-reform. What do you mean by that? What, what, what does that mean in, 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 a, in a given case? So, for example, so, okay, let's take, let's take non-reformal, right? So, anyone, you know, anyone who meets the definition that Ross has already talked about should enjoy protection from, from return to the country of persecution, the country of origin. And this should mean, you know, any asylum seeker turning up on UK territory can't be refused entry to the country and the UK has a duty to examine their claim. And obviously, we know there are already exceptions to that in the case of, of, of people who've who've stopped in the first safe third, uh, safe third country en route to the UK. Um, but we also know that poor asylum decision-making by the Home Office exposes asylum seekers here to the risk of refoulement at, at quite significant, to a quite significant degree. You know, we see this in the work that we do at Freedom From Torture with um, torture survivors who are going through the asylum process and we are helping them and we are helping their legal representatives to navigate a very complex process and one which often lets them down um, at, at various points. And so, you know, for example, the quality of initial decision making um, is not as good as it should be. And, and nearly 50% of asylum appeals are successful as a consequence. Now, every single one of those cases that's gone to appeal is a refugee who is at risk of being refooled to the, to the country of persecution. That is what it looks like in practice. So, you know, obviously this is not, this is not fail safe um, in terms of a, a, you know, a protection within the convention. You could also look at the immunity from penalty that, that Raz has just talked about as well, um, which should protect all asylum seekers who turn up on UK territory from any kind of penalty, whether that's criminal or administrative. But we know that asylum seekers arriving in the UK are subject to punishment on the basis of how they've arrived and their compliance with the immigration rules. And this takes the form often of detention, um, but also things like credibility assessments, which are a central component of the asylum decision-making process and often incorporates consideration of the applicant's compliance with the rules. And that will include things like overstaying or, or, or the method of arrival. So, you know, even that non-penalisation is not, um, you know, when it comes to practical implementation, can get very problematic. Okay, so that's the position prior to the bill uh, being uh, enacted. Um, 
which might be thought gloomy enough. Um, rather, I said out in the kind of opening your rather damning um, critique of the bill, if enacted, and what it would mean by way of a departure from our compliance to the Refugee Convention. Now, um, was that just uh, kind of your adversarial flourish, or is it really going to mean such a radical departure from our international obligations under the Convention? Yeah, Richard, I'm glad you asked that question, because I, I think it's actually quite understated to say that this bill is the biggest assault there's ever been in the UK on international refugee law. That's understated. It's not a rhetorical flourish. Why? And the reason for that is essentially twofold. Firstly, uh, the principle at the heart of the bill is the penalisation in criminal terms, in administrative terms, of those who arrive here by irregular means to claim asylum. That's the first reason. And secondly, uh, the bill seeks to reverse a number of very important decisions given by the UK courts over the last 20 years, including at House of Lords and Court of Appeal level, without offering any justification for doing so. And those are decisions on questions of international refugee law, where the Secretary of State lost the argument. They don't concern domestic statutory provisions or anything like that. It's pure international refugee law. And this bill takes the opportunity to reverse five or six really critical decisions without offering any justification whatsoever. But turning back to the first point, yeah. if we just think of somebody um, coming here, let's see what the bill does um, to them. So firstly, let's assume that they're crossing the channel. Now, one of the things that's central to the Refugee Convention is that refugees have some element of choice. They're not, they were never intended to be pieces of cargo where states could say, well, you must claim from Afghanistan in Pakistan or, or Iran. Refugees were entitled to exercise some element of choice. So let's say you've got an Afghan interpreter in Calais who wants to come to the UK because he's got connections here, he's got family here. Um, so the bill uh, authorises pushbacks in the channel, which is contrary to international human rights law. It confers immunity on UK officials if they cause injury or death. Um, let's say that the boat arrives here. The refugee is the refugee claimant who must be treated as though he or she is a refugee until she's determined not to be is criminalized for arriving. That's never happened before. So previously, the position has been, if you arrive and remain airside at a port, you're not doing anything wrong because you haven't engaged in deception or anything like that. You've simply arrived. This bill, for the first time ever, criminalizes with a sentence of up to four years imprisonment somebody who simply arrives. Next thing, let's say they are criminalized um, and get through the trial, um, found guilty, found not guilty, whatever. They are then subject to offshore processing. So places like Rwanda have been discussed at the moment, there aren't any plans. Um, let's say that the Secretary of State can't find anywhere to accept them. They are then subject to a delay. At present, it looks like up to six months. 
during which their rights to accommodation and support are inferior. After that period, their case is processed, let us say, and let's say that they win, their case is accepted. They are then classed as a refugee light. There's no such thing in the Refugee Convention. They are literally assigned to Group 2 refugee status. That's, that's not my flourish. That's in the bill, where the Secretary of State is entitled to discriminate against them as regards family reunion, which is such a critical right that the drafters didn't bother to put it into the Refugee Convention. The debates showed that they just assumed that no states would ever separate a refugee from his family. That's why it's not in there. It's not in there because it's so basic. But the Secretary of State has uh, suggested to Parliament that she should have authority to discriminate against group refugees on questions of family reunion, also on questions of recourse to public funds, which would be contrary to Article 23 of the Refugee Convention, also as regards the quality and nature of the refugees' leave, the expectation being that they would go back as soon as it was fine for them to do so. That's contrary to not the non-expulsion right that a refugee who's lawfully staying has under Article 32, and it's contrary to the right under Article 34 that um, states are under a duty to facilitate the assimilation and naturalisation of refugees. The Refugee Convention, one of the things I wanted to say is that it was a fairly extraordinary instrument in 1951 because it privileged a group of non-nationals by giving them real rights, not just the idea that the state had to tolerate them on its, on its territory, but they were actually given a set of very important rights uh, by way of what's called in, in, in the um, in term of art, surrogate protection. It's the principle of surrogacy, the idea that the international community steps in to give them protection, which is substitute for the protection that their uh, country of nationality is not able to give them. And so um, that's a quite an extraordinary um, set of affairs. And I, I've said a number of times, including in evidence to parliamentary committee, that there are at least seven reasons why that is absolutely fundamentally contrary to basic international refugee law. There's no debate about this. It's absolutely, obviously contrary to international refugee law. And the seven reasons, if, if I may, I'm sorry, sorry yeah. to it is that I've already touched on some of those reasons, but the first reason is such people who arrive irregularly ought not to be penalised. That's at the absolute core of the Refugee Convention. Secondly, the reason for that is the point I made earlier, which is that the idea of the Refugee Convention is to replace previous authorization-based regimes of the 1930s with a needs-based model. The bill reverses that rationale. It doesn't update the Refugee Convention, it backdates it. Um, thirdly, the bill attacks the fundamental idea in the Refugee Convention, again, I've touched on it, that refugees are entitled to some element of choice as to where they claim asylum. That was recognised by the drafters, by academics, by the UNHCR, by our courts at divisional court level, and by the House of Lords. So there's no requirement whatsoever, contrary to the animated concern of the bill, that an asylum seeker must claim asylum in the first safe country they reach. That would be completely nonsensical in 1951, where there wasn't any commercial air travel. Any refugee arriving in the UK would have crossed land borders. It wasn't thought then 
that everybody should be claiming from Afghanistan, in Pakistan, or in Iran, and so forth. Fourthly, the uh, central concern of the bill that you've got to claim asylum in the first safe country you reach is inconsistent with the idea of international cooperation, which is written in right at the very beginning of the Refugee Convention in its preamble. And re responsibility for refugees was always intended to be shared. The UHCR recently said that the bill undermines the global humanitarian and cooperative principles on which refugee protection is founded. Those principles, they're not anachronistic. They were affirmed as recently as three years ago by the UN General Assembly, and guess who? The UK. Fifthly, uh, the basis for the attack on irregular arrival is that refugees should use safe legal routes. They don't exist. There are no safe legal routes. There's no such thing as a refugee visa. Travel by ordinary means isn't a realistic option because of the logic of carrier's liability, um, and that's been recognized by our courts. Sixthly, resettlement schemes are no answer whatsoever, which have been prayed in aid by the Secretary of State. Such schemes, laudable as they are, are a complement to the Refugee Convention. They're not a replacement for it. And you can just test it by a simple example. Consider the case of an Afghan national who is number 5,001 in the queue for resettlement with the annual cap of 5,000 having been reached. What is he or she supposed to do? Say to the Taliban, look, hang on, next year I'll be eligible. Or consider the case of number 4,000 or number three or number one whose claim is held up by administrative delay or because they can't access their documents because the Taliban have taken over their village. So the analogy that's pressed by the Secretary of State of jumping a queue is could not be more false. There's no queue, there's no adequate queue, and there's no safe queue. And the last point is that this attack on unauthorized arrival is empirically unfounded as well as legally justified. I think the figure is around 60% of those who arrive, other than through resettlement, are in fact granted asylum. Well, Sheila, this next question in light of Rata's analysis might sound a bit, uh, um, even for me, a bit like a leading, too much of a leading question, which is in kind of light of what we know about the bill, what what are your fears about the actual, again, real world impact from the people that freedom from torture represent? I think we have to face the very real prospect that those people, those very, very vulnerable asylum seeking asylum seekers who have had an experience of torture, will not reach our services under these new proposals. Uh, and that doesn't mean they won't come. I think, you know, I think it's important to recognize that the government's stated objective here of deterring people from from arriving in the UK is is not going to, to 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 happen it is not they are not going to achieve their desired effect here with these proposals people will continue to come because the the the, the thing that is pushing them out of their countries of origin will continue to to, to be in place the, they will be, continue to flee persecution they will have to to flee wherever they can wherever they can manage so they will still come here it's just that once they get to the UK, they will not be able to access the kind of specialist support and rehabilitation services that Freedom From Torture provides. And that's because of everything that Raza has just described that builds obstacles and barriers into the process that isolates people 
whether that's criminalization and 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 detention whether that's uh being held in the kind of institutional accommodation that is quasi detention that is likely to be isolated far from any of our centers that's for sure and we know how difficult it, it has been during covid for the people in napier barracks to access healthcare um even at the most you know basic level and and even for those whose claim is admitted and Raz has explained the the kind of process that that they're going to go through it's going to be such an accelerated process they will be sped through that the idea that people who have experienced trauma and have in, you know intensely difficult complex sensitive information are going to be able to disclose that in, in, under those kind of conditions um, in time to meet the deadlines that are being introduced under this bill is 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 absolutely unthinkable they, they simply won't and consequently um, they are going to be put in a position where they are uh, disclosing late as it's as it's described or you know and and, and characterized as opportunistically um, and if by some miracle they do manage to obtain the kind of expert forensic medical evidence of their experience of torture that we provide at freedom from torture to corroborate their claim then there is a very very high chance that it won't be considered or that it won't carry as much weight in the decision um, on their claim or in any expedited appeal process that they're going to be put through and that of course is going to mean that those very, very legitimate, well-founded claims are likely to be refused and that those individuals will be, will be detained. And then if they're detained, any of their appeals are likely to go through the new detained fast track process that's being introduced under this bill. And we all know what the detained fast track process in its original form did to, to, the, to the claims of, of torture, torture and trafficking survivors and who were put at a significant procedural disadvantage by that process, which was then subsequently suspended. So all of the, these things will mitigate against vulnerable asylum seekers of the sort that the Home Secretary claims to want to champion um, against them being able to access both therapeutic support, immediate and urgent healthcare and, and and, and, and advice and information and support and the kind of forensic documentation that can prove determinative in, in, in helping someone to, to make their claim for asylum in the UK. And that is a very, very frightening prospect. And where are we now with the bill, Sheila? I mean, wh where is it in the, in the parliamentary process? And, and, and what's, what's happening by way of a campaign to oppose it? So today is, I believe, final stage, the final day of committee stage where um, the committee is considering new clauses uh, for the bill. It will go um, from here to report stage, probably in the last week in November, sort of early December. Uh, that will involve one day of debate and a handful of votes. That will be followed swiftly by third reading. There'll be a little break um, and then it will go to the Lords. We should see it complete um, second reading of the Lords before Christmas, which means that it will go to committee stage in the Lords in the new year. And this is going to be a really important stage for this bill um, in terms of the issues that we are raising around compliance with international law. That is where we will get uh, these issues debated and, and discussed and, the, and these arguments represented um, I hope very authoritatively, very persuasively uh, by peers who are very concerned already about um, about the UK's international standing and our, and our compliance with our international obligations. I mean, do you find as a campaigner that, you, that the fact that a proposal 
would be a breach of international law is a kind of a, is a, is a, is a kind of a useful tool that that is something that has traction with parliamentarians that's a good question and and there are divergent views on this i mean obviously this government is extremely relaxed about breaking some elements of international law and some parliamentarians just aren't interested in this angle at all as far as they're concerned you know brexit gave us back our sovereignty and we shouldn't feel bound by international agreements that were negotiated before um, many of us were born. But I mean, some have gone even further and argued that instruments such as the convention should be renegotiated. We heard this in the Lords um, just this week. But what we are hearing from the government on this particular bill is a repeated mantra that it is consistent with our obligations under the Refugee Convention. There is evidently still an attachment to that convention and a recognition, I think, of its value. And what what I kind of almost see like as an emotional bond, it's tied very closely to to images of the Holocaust. And I think that that preserves its sort of its currency a little bit. And we also, you know, we, we have a constituency within the Conservative Party that's very uncomfortable with anything that undermines the rule of law. You've got your, you know, your David Davis, your Damon Green, William Hague, Dominic Grieve. Granted, many of these are no longer MPs or, or maybe on the back bench, but they still have some influence within the party. And we've explored, you know, using this kind of international law arguments within our campaigning. We had some success last year on the Overseas Operations Bill in using international law arguments to try and influence parliamentarians and decision makers in order to try and secure an amendment to that bill that would withdraw torture from the list of acts for which British forces would have immunity from prosecution. And it was, you know, it was, it was one of, it was, it was in a mix of messages. We had, you know, the moral angle, the legal angle, we had the reputational damage angle. Um, I mean, it's really important, I think, to remember that, you know, there's a power that that secondary influencers have, as we call them, that that many of whom are very receptive to international law arguments. And these can involve, you know, we went under the Overseas Operations Bill, we worked with the military establishment, we worked with legal voices, with the Lord Spiritual, with with lots of Tory MPs and peers. And the international law arguments were critical in bringing those voices together to, to kind of give the impression about a sort of an establishment unease with what was being proposed under this bill. And and actually, at the time, we instructed Matrix to produce a legal opinion, which I think you, Richard, worked on, um, which really helped to reassure some of those voices, including Dominic Grieve, um, who in turn helped to kind of reassure others uh, within his circle. And so, you know, we had we had a number of voices speaking out publicly, including we had a, a grandee's letter with Malcolm Rifkin and uh, Grieve and Field Marshal Guthrie. We had uh, voices from the UN, the International Criminal Court, OHCHR. All of this was, you know, much of this was happening in the media. Some of it was happening behind the scenes. Um, and, it, and we worked with Labour as well in terms of bringing them from a position of uh, uncertainty and intransigence around this into one where they were talking about the international law arguments. Um, and, and it worked. You know, we secured two government climb downs on that bill, first on torture and, and crimes against humanity, and then on all war crimes were, were withdrawn from that list. So it can work, but it has to be part of a kind of a wider arsenal. So, Raza, that's the traction that um, international law arguments can have in the political sphere. What about in the legal sphere? I mean, let's assume this bill is enacted in its current form. I mean, it isn't, but let's assume that it is. Then what, if anything, would be the relevance of the fact that it would put us in breach of our obligations under the Refugee Convention? 
Well, I mean, just before I answer that, I mean, obviously it's a fairly fairly topical issue whether or not Parliament uh, can legislate uh, contrary to international law. And uh, Professor Mark Elliott at Cambridge and David Allen Green, amongst others, I think it made the point very powerfully that this idea of dualism, the idea that international treaties don't confer rights and obligations justiciable and enforceable in domestic law, that just doesn't bite in international law. It just doesn't bite on whether or not Parliament can or should legislate contrary, clearly contrary to international law, which is what this bill does for reasons I tried to explain earlier. Uh, legally, obviously, we have this idea of dualism. So uh, unincorporated international treaties exert uh, a softer influence on law. They're, not, they're certainly not irrelevant um, at all, although the reliance upon them, I think, has been made more difficult because of the philosophy of the um, Supreme Court that we now have, but they're certainly not irrelevant. And one of your earlier uh, guests on this series and one of our great uh, colleagues, Murray Hunt, has written a fantastic and seminal book on this issue using human rights law in English courts. So they exert a soft influence in terms of the uh, presumptions of compatible interpretation, particularly where, as Sheila said, the government are at pains to say this is entirely uh, compatible with the Refugee Convention. And uh, uh, the, as the Home Secretary has to, an assertion by her on the face of the bill that it's compatible with the Human Rights Act. Absolutely, yes. Can I just step back and look at the bigger picture here, away from the bill, but just the kind of the larger kind of geopolitics of where we are with... Um, debates about immigration and asylum and refugee rights. And it, I mean, it's clear to all of us, this is an absolutely huge dynamic in world politics, whether it's Trump in America or Orban in Hungary or Priti Patel here. And it's, it's a major issue in Western Europe. And it appears as though the populist right are very successful in using immigration and the fear of immigration uh, as a recruitment sergeant or as just generally in dominating the kind of political field. Brexit is, is just one of a kind of a myriad of examples. What can those of us who are passionate about the protection of refugee rights do to try and alter the popular discourse. Sheila, what, 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 what's your take? Yeah, I think you asked me earlier about um, campaigning on this. Um, and I think, you know, this is a battle we have to fight on a number of different fields. I think we've talked a bit about parliamentary work. We've talked about legal work. And I think this bill and the proposals within it are going to be litigated um, extensively. Um, you know, I think that campaigning and public campaigning, public mobilization has to be, um, you know, one of the core uh, strategies that we are using to to counter the recent you know, developments in the UK and across Europe. Immigration and asylum is being employed, uh, deployed as a wedge issue in a culture war, you know, in all of those, you know, many of those examples that you cited. And this bill 
is a very classic example of that. It's theatre. It's all about communicating a very divisive message to the public. This isn't legislation that will work. It's not designed to work. That's not the point of it. This is you know, legislation as theatre. So we do need to be mindful of that, particularly in the language that we use and the framing, I think, that we adopt, but also in the battles that we pick to a certain extent. You know, the government wants this debate to be about smuggling, criminal gangs, irregular migration and abuse of the asylum process. But this bill does nothing to address any of those things. It's it's simply a platform for, for propaganda. And we need to try to refra- reframe that debate. That's what the public campaigning and mobilisation work that we're doing is seeking to do. Because you know this bill, what it will do is it, it will destroy what's left of the UK's asylum system. And then that will ripple out, undermining commitments you know, globally to, 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 to protection, to the protection of refugees. Um, one of the, you know, one of the, yeah, I was going to say, that's a kind of, that's a kind of, um, those are the rules of the defense. Yeah. I mean, those are the kind of how we go about dealing with this particular act, but how do we go on the offense more generally in terms of our political culture for this either to detoxify this whole debate or to actually promote the positive, all the immense positive things that immigration brings to this country. I speak as a second generation immigrant to this country. I mean, what, how, do we, how do we change the debate? Richard, uh, Richard I just wanted to say three things, if I can. Yeah. Firstly, it was the former president of the uh, Inter-American Court of Human Rights who said, that the issues of refugees and migration cannot be addressed otherwise than in a spirit of human solidarity. That's the first thing I'd like to say. The second thing I want to say is I want to pay tribute to organisations such as Sheila's Freedom From Torture, who are, who are at the coalface and do a quite magnificent and humbling job. Um, for the likes of me, I regard myself as a technician, they do the heavy lifting. And I think the most important thing, the third thing I wanted to say, is education. We simply have to tell the truth uh, to address what is a propagandized post-truth world. I'll give you a very simple example. Um, the government line that this bill breaks the business model of criminal gangs. Well, I mean, what it does is it punishes, penalizes the victims of those gangs. It does barely, barely anything to the gangs. So things like that. Yeah. I mean, what you were saying about a, a kind of a positive alternative vision, you know, a, um, a, 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 a sort of a creative offensive um, strategy as opposed to a defensive one is, is you know, is what we're, we're trying to do. We're, we're Freedom From Torture is working with a number of other refugee organisations, including UNHCR, and side by side with uh, people with lived experience of the asylum system. Um to campaign strongly, um, not just against this bill, but to importantly to to propose an alternative vision for the UK as a as a country that welcomes people seeking sanctuary. Um, we're part of a coalition of three hundred organisations that's called um, Together with Refugees, and they are both national and local. Importantly, you know we've got a strong network of local activists and campaigners, um, and they've all we've all come together behind. You know, 
an alternative vision of a compassionate and welcoming approach to refugees. And it's the campaign is, you know, it's, it's grassroots organizations, it's, it's international development charities, it's trade unions, it's faith groups, everybody is represented there. And there are, you know, two really important and complementary elements to the campaign. One of which I've just started talking about is the alternative positive vision, you know, calling for a kinder, fairer, more effective approach to supporting refugees in the UK and doing this through public campaigning and movement building, doing it through local demonstrations of, of support for the principle of, of refugee protection and what refugees bring to this country. And we, we recently had a week of action uh, a couple of weeks ago where individuals and groups across the UK expressed in their own way their message of hope and of welcome. Some of them did this through rallies and meetings or large-scale art installations, social gatherings, those sorts of things. A lot of them met with their MPs, including in Parliament Square, where we held um, a big rally. We've got another week of action coming up in December, and we'll be asking our supporters across the coalition to write to and meet with their MPs. And this is all about kind of building that, you know, building that public movement, building you know, critical mass to demonstrate that the, you know, the British people don't want this bill. We don't want the kind of country that, that this bill um, represents. We don't, uh, what we want is you know, the, this alternative vision of a caring and compassionate. I think it's rather talked about solidarity. Key element to that has to be about um, you know, seeking commonality, looking across the thresholds that the culture wars are seeking to, to, to divide us with. You know, it's, it, it is that kind of countering that culture wars approach. We are looking for unity and commonality. And one of those is about the values that we share. And those values can be compassion and kindness and fairness. And that is the asylum system that we are proposing. Well, Sheila, that's a perfect place to draw the discussion to the end with such kind of positivity um, and a kind of a call to arms. Can I, as a fellow technician, um, thank you, Sheila, uh, and uh, of course, Freedom from Torture for the phenomenal work that you do across the range of human rights issues that impact uh, upon victims of torture and many more. And Raza, thank you. It's always um source of pride that I'm in the chambers with you and the work that you do and um, thank you for listening. Thanks Richard. Thanks.